be off, but um, free from preaching because I enjoy listening to the preaching of God's word and and need the encouragement that comes from God's word as much as you do. So I praise God for that. When I'm preaching, um, the Holy Spirit gives me encouragement as I preach because I preach to myself and then to others. But today I get to be preached to, and I look forward to that. I'm glad to have Elder Brian to come and to uh, share God's word this morning. He'll be preaching from this text that I read, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So would you turn there in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have your own Bible or would like to have that same version that we'll be reading and preaching from, raise your hand. Our ushers have Bibles in the ESV available. Just raise your hand. They'll bring one to you that you can use throughout our, our service this morning. Let's stand together as we listen to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then was whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ when we did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection, in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But if God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is, as, is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon and another glory of the stars. The star differs, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God give us understanding in the scripture that we read and are preaching this morning. If you would remain standing with me and have a moment of prayer. After prayer, our choir will come with special music and then the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for bringing us together for worship. We thank you for the testimony of baptism uh, for Chad and for Ambrose who shared that testimony that, that you have saved them and that they commit their lives to you. We thank you uh, for allowing us to be here. We thank you for last week and all that happened in, in that service and those who, who uh, the message was just clear and it was it just was continuing to be communicated through song and through skit as I thought and reflected and meditated and, and uh, um, just hummed and sang the songs all through the week. So I thank you, Lord, for that. I pray others as, were as blessed by that message. I thank you for Brian as he comes to speak this morning. I pray, to Lord, that you would um, give him the words. Give him your spirit to speak your truth with power and that your Holy Spirit might um, anoint uh, your word today as it goes out so that we'll receive it, that we'll take it in, that we will honor, treasure your truth, that it might speak to our hearts and be a blessing to us. We pray for so, uh, uh, some of those who are missing today because of sickness and we just pray, Lord, that you just continue to watch over, bless, heal, that they might return. Um, now bless this service and all that we do for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, praise his name. Praise his name. Well, I thank God for giving me a word. And I thank him for allowing me to be able to give that word. I was sick all week. Sick as a dog. I'm just now starting to recover. I was trying to finish up writing my notes yesterday, and every time I would write a good point, I'd be like, praise God, and then all of a sudden I couldn't, couldn't do nothing. But just praise him, I feel a little bit better today. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong, amen? So it's been a week since what the world calls Easter. We had sermons being declared across the nation, kids having programs, not just in our church, but across the whole world. 
Facebook statuses, people asking the question, he is risen. And people responding, he is risen indeed. And it's good. Lots of people had church attendance through the roofs. So now we got to ask the question, where are they at this week? And some people want to ask the question, is it time to move on from the resurrection? You know, we talked about that last week. Why well, we got to do it again? We covered it for a year. I got my church in for the year. Maybe I'll come back on Mother's Day. I might come back on Christmas service. But I got my religion in. And so most people... The resurrection is something they talk about once a year. In fact, it's not even the best Christian holiday Christmas is. And it made me turn to the book of 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians is a lot about Christian maturity. And if you look across the globe, you can tell we don't have the most mature church. And the Corinthians struggle with something that we call carnality, which is... They struggled with their flesh. They struggled with the desires of what they wanted. And you would think that Paul would battle that with uh, different strategies, right? You battle that and you say, okay, man, if somebody has, you know, pride, we'll we'll hit them with a dose of humility. If somebody is foolish, we'll hit them with a dose of wisdom. But he didn't do that. He fought back by focusing on their identity in Christ. And when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole, you start to see that maturity comes from the work of God on the heart, not from understanding worldly wisdom, which is the opposite of the way that the world treats it, because the world treats maturity as something that you gain from experience over time, and you can show people that wisdom through the strength of your mind. But God shows maturity by showing your ability to focus on him despite the things that are going on outside. Sometimes godly maturity is admitting you don't know. Worldly maturity never does that. One of the silliest things you can do when you go on a date is to pretend the stuff you don't know. But in a church, you got to start with humility. And Paul has been going through this book, dealing with all these issues of immaturity, and finally he gets to 1 Corinthians 15, and a lot of people say, why do you wait till then? But it's kind of like a song. He had been building to this. You got to understand that this right here is the solo, and I play the bass, so for me this is the bass solo. Maybe you play another instrument, for you it's that solo. But the point is, is that this is the highlight of the book. And what he's going to tell them is this. When you focus on the flesh, you show you've lost sight of the gospel. And a lot of people, they talk about practical things, and I get it. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't focus on the gospel, the gospel is of the most immediate practicality. And if you don't focus on this cross, look, they put this cross back up after this baptism. If you don't focus on that cross, you will be stuck in immaturity. Your Christianity will be stuck in adolescence, and it's no wonder you do not grow. 
you'll be constantly suffering from immaturity. So he starts off at the beginning. He says, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? He said, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Well, he starts talking about characteristics of the gospel before he talks about the particulars of it. The gospel is what we preach. It is powerful. If you've been in this church long enough, you can understand the power that comes from this pulpit. If you can't feel it, you're spiritually blind. You feel that power that comes forth. And what is that power? The Holy Spirit is saying yes in this room. It is what you have received. There is a joy in the gospel. When you receive the gospel, it lights you up with joy like nothing else can. It's better than when your team does that dunk. It's better than winning a Super Bowl. It's better than eating that chocolate cake. It's better than those other pleasures. What the prophets say? In your presence is pleasure forevermore. It is what you stand on. It is foundational. It is uplifting. It is what encourages us. It's what keeps us going. It is what is saving you now. It is transformative. It is effective. It is constantly something that you stand on, but because it is constantly moving with you as you walk in it. As you walk about life, it is like the ground that moves before you. If you hold fast. The gospel's last characteristic that many people don't emphasize is that the gospel is terrifying. The gospel has sharp edges. He says, if you hold fast. You know, in a couple weeks, my dad is going to be preaching through in Acts, and there's a passage where Paul shares the gospel with Felix and says, Felix is terrified. And there's something about the gospel that should scare you and me. It's something about the gospel that's a threat. It's something about the gospel that says, and if you don't listen, dot, dot, dot. But the gospel fills in the gaps. So those are just the characteristics of it. What are the particulars of the gospel? Well, that's in verse 3 through 11. Christ died for our sins. You got to understand that Christ died. It was a violent death. It was a brutal death. It was a public death. It was a sacrificial death. You got to understand that our sins deserve death. We deserve to be on a cross. You look at those thieves, that should be us. We deserve to be strapped up there because we have to pay for our sins. Your sins are not free. Somebody has to pay the cost. But Jesus paid it for us. It's sacrificial, it's brutal, it seems extravagantly violent, but it was absolutely necessary. Jesus was raised. Now Jesus died and raised, and it says, as Scripture has promised, according to the Scriptures, Everything that Jesus did is something that the Scriptures predicted and that the Scriptures empowered. He appeared to the apostles and the leaders of the church. And so what can we say about that? It's undeniably true. It's documented. 
is witnessed, is verifiable, and is practical. It has judgment and a purpose. Because we understand that if Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins, we understand that there is a penalty for sins. And we have to understand that. We have to understand the facts of the resurrection. The fact that there is no event in history that is more documented from the ancient world than Jesus' resurrection. It's amazing to me that anybody could deny it because you have historical facts that are documented just by one single scroll that has holes in certain places. But it proves that so-and-so king really did exist. They will trust in that. But we got four Gospels. We got saints. We got eyewitnesses. And people want to act like there is something in doubt. Do not pretend with them that they have any validity. You know, we had this thing in our culture. We call it agree to disagree. And I get it. We don't want to argue to somebody to the death with something. At some point, we have to go home. But there is something dangerous about agree to disagree. And it's the idea that we both could go home feeling that we're right. And I have to tell you, we can't both be right about the resurrection if you don't believe in it and I do. Somebody is wrong and that somebody is the one who doesn't believe in the resurrection. And you have to understand this. You're not just wrong academically. You are wrong with an impact. An impact on your very soul, an impact on eternity, an impact on all the people that you interact with. And when you deny the resurrection, you say historical fact is a lie. You say eyewitness testimony is a lie. You say all the faith and all the charity and all the things that Christians have done for 2,000 years is a lie. You got a lot to argue against when you pretend that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And I'm not going to pretend that you got a foot to stand on. If you want to be an atheist, be it, but don't be it around me. So the next question that Paul asks is this, how can you even deny the resurrection? He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Right? This is incredulous to Paul. He said, wait, wait, uh, stop me for a second, guys. Are we in the church of Christ? How how are you going to deny this? If there is no resurrection, our preaching and faith is in vain. That power that you feel, it doesn't exist. You know you felt it. That faith that you have is in vain. We are still in our sins. Just because Jesus didn't raise don't mean the fact of the matter that we have a moral debt to God is gone. It just means that we don't have nobody who can meet that debt. In fact, we anger God even more because we lied about what his plan was. We lied about what he did. We lied on his own son. And we are the most pitiful religion on the face of the world. 
because we go around being persecuted for something that does not bring us any benefit in this life. And if this life is all we got, we got nothing. Let me tell you the truth, all of you. Christianity does not bring you the most joy today. It will not always make you happy today. It is not always pleasant today. And if you think that it does make you happy all the time, you need to look at the symbol behind me, that cross. Because that's the pinnacle of our faith. Jesus was not feeling joy when nails were going through his arms. Jesus was not feeling joy when every two seconds he had to push against nails that were in his flesh to breathe. Jesus was not feeling joy when he said, Father, why have you even forsaken me? Jesus was not feeling joy when all the apostles had run away. Jesus was not feeling joy when he was naked in front of hundreds of people and they was mocking him. Jesus was not feeling joy when he was whipped and they put a crown of thorns on his head. Stephen was not feeling joy when the rocks was crushing down on him and he died. James was not feeling joy when he was beheaded. Peter was not feeling joy when he was crucified upside down. Andrew was not feeling joy when they crucified him in the symbol of an X. John was not feeling joy when he was sent to the island of Patmos and not allowed to interact with the church anymore. There is a lot of suffering involved in being a Christian. And that's just the New Testament. I can point to you to the Old Testament where guys are wandering around in deserts when other people are ministering to kings that are hard-headed, refusing to listen. Other kings split their kingdoms in two against the advice of the prophet. It is not always pleasant to know the plan of God and see people going the other way. It is not always pleasant to serve the Lord today. The Christian is not serving for today. Today is the day of sin. If you want to have the most joy right now, you need to shoot up. You need to sleep around. You need to eat up. Because that's going to bring you the most joy. Now, it will hurt you tomorrow. But it will bring you the most joy today. But if you want to have joy for eternity, you need to say no to joy today. Christianity is not about today. It's not even about this life. How many times do you see somebody do something wrong and immediately you turn around and see something evil happen to them? You don't often see it. When you do see it, you'd be amazed, right? And the point is, is that we don't see the justice of God often in our lifetime. People say the good guys always win. I have not seen that in my life. I have seen the bad guys win more often. I have seen lies be more effective than truth. Politicians that are good at lying, they always the one winning the elections. People will go on and they say, the police did this and this and this on me. And the whole community will storm out and riot. And we find out the truth that that person lied. There's no ramifications for that person lying. But the community is still on fire. That's the world we live in. 
Am I trying to depress you with that? Well, I mean, if you wanted to be depressed, that's the state of the world. You may say, well, Brian, that kind of depresses me. Well, hey, lots of holy people have been depressed. Unfortunately, that's how it is. Moses said, Lord, kill me now. Elijah said, I don't deserve to live anymore. Jesus said, take this cup from me, and he bled it through his sweat. Yes, it could be depressing sometimes to be a servant of the Lord. The word of God doesn't protect you from depression. The word of God is not always a joy every moment, but it's a joy when you look afar off. So Paul says, if in Christ we have life and this life only, we are of people most to be pitied. But, very next verse, but in fact, Christ did raise. Christ did raise. And that's why we have joy for tomorrow. Because he lives. You know that hymn? Because he lives. I got hope. You could kill me now. See, that's why the apostles would let themselves be killed. That's why Jesus let himself be killed. Why? Because he had hope. Why does he have hope? Because Jesus raised from the dead. It was a resurrection that was the first of his kind. You might tell me, hey, Brian, there was other resurrections before that. And you were right. But this was the first of its kind. You see, you got to understand that Jesus' resurrection was different than other resurrections. Because Jesus walked around in a different kind of body. Jesus says is the first fruits of this resurrection. And he is the promise of all of us who follow after him that we will also walk in the same way that he walked. Just as Adam led to death for all men, Jesus adds to life to all those who follow after him. The gospel has universal ramifications. The gospel also creates a universal timeline. Christ raised first then us raised second. Lastly, the end. Christ raised first. Then at his coming, when he returns, we will be raised with him. And after he comes, then comes the end. See the three universes? Universal ramifications, universal timeline, universal domination. Christ will dominate this world. He will return and he will put every authority under his authority. He will make sure there is nothing that stands against him. And when he puts everybody down on their knees, when he's got his foot on everybody's neck, then he turns around and says, Lord, these are all yours. So you got to understand there is victory in Jesus Christ and only in him because everything else ultimately leads to defeat. Jesus has the victory promised to him. And we talk about the gospel, that's part of that gospel. That Jesus will return and set everything right. Jesus returns, then the saints, and then the end. So then he asks this question. And I know we got 29, which is one of the hardest verses in the Bible. But he asks this question, Basically, through 29 through 34, why do we suffer like we do if there wasn't a resurrection? Why do we suffer like that? Now, 29, I think you can interpret it in one of two ways. One is you can interpret it as this. 
Are we baptized in the name of the dead? Are we baptized in honor of somebody that didn't raise from the dead? The other way of saying, when Ambrose and Chad was put in the water, did we bring them back out or did we leave them in there? You got brought back out, right, brother? You got brought back out. And the whole point is that when we lay them down in that water, they identify with Jesus by being raised back up. And that's what we do. We identify with Jesus and dying with him, then we will identify when we raise with him. He said, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we baptized in the name of Jesus? Why are we sing in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus? What we got? We got the victory. Write that song. In the name. What's the power of that name if the name is dead? Why are we in danger every hour, the apostle says. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. I'm always under threat. The reason I don't care is because I know I'm going to be raised. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, that's something we ain't know. We ain't know that about Paul, right? Paul be revealing some stuff. Right? There's a quote about Jesus that only Paul knew when he said it's better to give than to receive. That's not in any of the Gospels, but Paul somehow knew that, right? But then we got this one here. He fought with beasts. Well, what does that mean? Well, they had this tradition in the Roman times where if you anger certain people, you get thrown in the Colosseum. And in the Colosseum will be wild beasts. I guess our boy Paul was bad because he survived that, right? I know, I mean, I wouldn't want to mess up Paul if he went in a ring with a tiger and won. But the point is, is that God gave him the victory through that, but he wasn't afraid even if he didn't have a victory. Why? Because he knew he would live with Christ Jesus. That's the same reason why Daniel was not afraid to be thrown into the lion den. That's the same reason why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not afraid to be thrown into the fire. Because they say, even if we do die, we still going to live. See, we have this promise of resurrection. It's not like the resurrections that came before it. Because the resurrections that came before it, you know, it's kind of like a video game. I like to play these video games. And in these video games, you can sometimes die. But you always can have some way of reviving your character. But you know the problem, when you revive your character, you might die again. That's what happened to Lazarus, right? That's that kind of resurrection that happened to Lazarus. Lazarus got resurrected and he died again. But what happens with Jesus' resurrection? Jesus rose, but now death cannot affect him. And that's a different kind of resurrection. I want you to understand this is a different nature of resurrection. It's a nature where you are no longer able to be killed. You are no longer able to be harmed where death could sit there slashing at Jesus all day and he could be like, when are you getting tired? Because it doesn't affect him anymore. So Paul says all this and he says, we have this power of resurrection. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You should be a hedonist, just like I described it. What's the model of Satanism? My brother taught me this. What does it say? It say, do as you will, Right? Do as you will. If you hear, see somebody have a shirt like that, stay away from them. Because that's a Satanist slogan. The Satanist slogan, do what you want. 
That's what we got. Mardi Gras, do as you want. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. These are all Satanist slogans. When you follow your passions, we know that that's a lie. What does it say here? Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You hang around with people like that, you go to hell just with them. Stop hanging around with people talking like that. Stop collaborating with people who deal like that. Because they're going to have you falling in the same old path as they are. And you already know that there's a judgment that Jesus Christ will put every knee down, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So why play games with that man? The scripture says, kiss the son lest he be angry. He said, wake up. You don't just say wake up. He said, wake up from your drunken stupor. He said, stop being stupid. That's what he said. Stop being stupid and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. If you act like this, you're not saved is what he's saying. And he said, if this is in the church, it's a shame to you. It's a shame. Now, in the last section of this chapter, somebody tried to object on theoretical grounds. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body or do they come? Now, if that was an honest question, Paul wouldn't have responded the way he did. But what people is doing is they're trying to say, well, I don't understand it, Paul. It's just I can't theoretically think about how it might occur. I just can't believe in it. Fool. <laughs> Fool. You know, I have this same kind of concern because a lot of people in the church, they try to be too big-tented. What do I mean by Big Ten? A Big Ten is a political idea where you let all kind of people in. And there's this idea that a lot of Christians have where, you know, if you don't believe in the literal creation, then I guess I can accept you as a Christian too because the Bible doesn't say, no. If you read the Bible as it is written, you will understand that the, Bible, the world was created in six days. But I don't understand it. How, it don't matter what you understand. You know, I want to tell them, now, kids in the room, but to Hades with your understanding. You don't have to understand everything God do to believe in it. It's all kind of people, I got to understand this, I got to understand that. Why don't you just believe in God first? And then let him expand your understanding instead of trying to make God fit into the box you have to fit in. Maybe you just too dumb to figure out what God is doing. Is that, is that too much for you? Could that be the case? Because I got to tell you, the scripture says things too wonderful for me. There are things beyond my understanding. You think that first don't apply to you. You're just so smart. It's just all got to fit in your head. It all works together somehow. You're going to theorize your way to Jesus Christ. No, you're not. You trust in my faith. Just like the simple person got to trust in my faith. You are no better and God's ways are so much higher above our ways, we all may as well be silly and stupid. In fact, God didn't call no wise people. God didn't call no noble people. God didn't call no beautiful people. God didn't call no great people. He called me and you. Little worms, that's what he called. We are not great. Even when we say we're just called sheep, and sheep are not known for their intelligence or bravery. But sheep do have one admirable trait. They trust a shepherd. 
That's what we need to do. Stop trying to figure it all out. I just would hate to see a sheep over there reading a book talking about which way we going. No. Follow the shepherd. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He started to talk about how the resurrection is not dependent on the physical body that it inhabits. The body is just a seed. And he then further describes that God gives the body, God determines what flesh it has, and God determines what glory it will have. And how even in creation, he makes it have different fleshes, there's different kinds of glory, there's different kinds of bodies. And what we get from this is that the resurrected body is related to the body that we have, but it is nowhere near that body. It is as different from that body as a plant is from a seed. What we need to understand happens in verse 42 through 49, where it, I just titled this section, God Does a Work. God changes us from natural to spiritual. God takes us who have the lineage of Adam, we have life, but then those who of us who have the lineage of Jesus have spiritual life. God takes us who have the lineage of Adam, we turn into dust. But the lineage of Jesus, we return into heaven. What was Adam made out of? He was made out of dust. And to dust, we will return. But I thank my God. Because a lot of people, they have gone through, and, and listen, there's history is full of this. There's lots of people who are so worried about how the resurrection is going to happen that they build these big old coffins and all this stuff. That's actually why, where that came from. Man, how Jesus going to resurrect me if he can't find my body? So then they put this big old coffin and they put all this stone and everything and try to protect it because they want it to last until that final day. And we recognize that the body decays really quickly. And all those materials, guess what? At some point, a worm is going to eat it. And that worm gets eaten by something else, probably a bird. And then that bird dies and becomes part of a tree and in the circle of life, right? <laughs> and we all know so we could be sitting on somebody's body at a chair, right? And the whole point is, is that somebody will say, well, when God resurrects, there's going to be holes everywhere because God is pulling people's bodies out and stuff. No. What's going to happen is, God, you're looking at the husk, Okay? You're looking at the seed, and God is going to create something new out of that seed. God created this phrase, and it was so cool in the creation. He said, I'm going to make man in my likeness. And Adam had children, and he said he begot children after his likeness. But Jesus will beget children in his likeness. When he resurrected and he appeared to so many, he showed some traces of what that body would be like. That they could still tell it was Jesus, but that he was walking through walls, that he was appearing places, that he could still eat, but that he couldn't be harmed. This is a resurrected body. And here's one thing that Paul teaches us in the next section, that a resurrected body is absolutely necessary because without it, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, people read the next verse wrong because they say 
they read it and they emphasize, we will not all sleep. And that's the wrong point of emphasis. When they read it, it says, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. But you should read it like this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. See, we don't know when Christ is going to return. Some of us may be living when he returns. But we do know this. We can't take this body into heaven. We can't take this body with him. We must all be changed. See, when that horn sounds, that death will be revoked. We will take on imperishable bodies, new bodies. And when we take on that body that death has no impact on, then we will sing what was written in the scripture, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Now, the sting of death is sin. Where did death come from? It came from sin. We all sin, and that's why we all die. Where does sin come from? Sins come from God defining a moral law. I know it's hard for us to understand, but we got to understand this, that it wasn't a sin to steal until God said, don't steal. Once God said, don't steal, and people started stealing, that was when sin happened. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, not through the law, not through us working hard, not through us climbing a mountain, not through us doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. He saved us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When you work for the Lord, it's not in vain. Now, I want to end the message with a few words. The first thing is that for the Corinthians, after they read this chapter, they had to confront their immaturity with Christ's work. You got to understand that the whole book of Corinthians was like that. Paul combated in the very first few chapters their lack of unity with Christ's unity. Their desire for elegance and extravagance with the simplicity of the gospel. Their carnality, remember they let somebody, they thought that somebody was good to be in member status who was sleeping with their mother-in-law. With being in the presence of Christ. Eating food offered to idols as taking care of Christ's brothers and sisters. As honoring their own gifts as being part of Christ's body. It was all about Christ. That's how he combated those things. He took them back to what did Christ say? What is the gospel? In a universal church, when people have read this chapter over time, what they have understood is this. Christ must be preached and he must be the center of our worship. And don't be so intellectual that you deny the power of God. This is a message for the whole church. It's a message for us today. That we got to understand that as much as we like the praise time, this is why preaching and teaching has to be the center of our service. Because we got to preach Christ and we got to preach Christ crucified and raised. And you can't get all of that in a song. It has to be taught and preached. You got to be rebuked by this passage. 
rebuke to understand that you should not move past a resurrection. You can't forget the gospel. You got to rebuke that you need to understand that you need to wake up. Yes, you need to wake up. Wake up, he says, from your drunken stupor. If you are missing the centrality of who Jesus is, if you are missing how important that is, you got to wake up, man. You're kind of like the person that's drifting off to sleep driving a car, not realizing you are heading into oncoming traffic. And you need to be ashamed. Because if you're living a life where you chase pleasure instead of Christ's pleasure, you need to be ashamed before he puts you to shame. You need to be encouraged by this passage. That you need to understand that when you're in this church, you're in the right place because the gospel alone saves. You need to understand that when you're sitting here paying attention to the gospel being preached, you should be encouraged because preaching is not in vain. You need to be encouraged because you need to understand that every time we feel an ache or a pain or a sickness like I've been feeling all week, we got to understand that one day we will be changed. We got to beware when we approach this passage because we got to understand that we need to see our solutions in the gospel and not in the world. That's why I don't necessarily like psychologists and psychiatrists and all these other things. I get it. But the problem is the mind is a spiritual thing. And when you approach a spiritual thing in a physical way, you will have partial solutions. It's no different than getting somebody that's a drunkard and telling them, just don't drink. But does that deal with his desire inside to do wrong, to please himself? Ultimately, what he will do is replace his sin with another sin. What we need to do is replace the desire to sin. And that can only be done through the work of God. That takes a miracle. That takes a miracle. We need to beware of perverting the gospel. There are many people out there who are perverting the gospel, one, by not preaching judgment. Another way of perverting the gospel would be to act like we're so intellectual that we don't trust the power of God. I have too many people and good Christian preachers sitting there saying it's acceptable to not believe in the creation to not believe in Noah's Ark, all this stuff, because it seems kind of crazy to believe that now. Paul was looked at as mad, right? In the next few chapters that my dad is going to preach, they're going to say, Paul, much learning has made you mad. It's okay to look crazy if it's for the sake of the gospel. And people need to get back to that. If the world don't like us, so What? Second last thing is we need to see Christ in this passage. We need to see how his death, burial, and resurrection are central to everything. In fact, one of the keys to preaching is to see how God, how Christ's work is in every passage. We need to understand that he appeared to his disciples. And I want to make that clear because we need to understand that, that it's a historical fact that he appeared. This is not just some, oh, we just believe it because we want to believe it. No, we believe it because it is fact. We need to understand he will return and he will reign over all this world. And when we look out on the world, we see it lent to Satan today, but it is not going to be his forever. We need to see the connection between Christ's return and his resurrection. 
You got to understand that when Christ rose from the dead and was given a new body, when he returns, we will have the same kind of bodies. And the last thing is we need to be steadfast. Look at the very first two verses. He says, I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive and which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But then what's the answer? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Right? Stay in this truth. Immovable. Don't let nobody sway you that there's a lie in the gospel. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because we will hold fast. Therefore, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We are not wasting our time here. When you donate a dime to the church, it is a perfect investment. It's more than a perfect investment. You don't just double your investment. You infinity-wise your investment. Because you can't invest better than investing in the kingdom of God. You think God don't give a return on the investment you put in him? We need to have a businessman's mindset to the church. We give to the church because we're going to get from the church. We need to put in our time, our energy, our monies. Because we're going to get rich off of Jesus Christ. Not rich in a literal sense, but rich in a spiritual sense. You think that God will not repay you for the work that you do? You think God is unjust? Oh, he will pay you. I got to tell you, I have never wasted amount of time, any amount of time. I've never done any work in the church where I've said to myself, that was a waste. I never had that feeling. Now, I have invested in people who I thought, I wish I didn't invest in them. That was a waste. But God never let any activity that I do didn't benefit me in some way for his kingdom. And I have not been serving that long. But my grandmother probably can vouch for that. I'm nine years old. Are you ever wasting any time in the work, working for the Lord? Ever been anybody waste? You ever had any waste? Anybody in here ever wasted any time, felt like anything they did for the Lord was a waste of time? I wait for somebody to raise their hand so I can call them a liar. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Because when you invest in the kingdom, you will receive a return. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth. We pray that you just bless us with your truths and your word. Bless us to live this, to live this victory that you've given us through Jesus. You didn't get this victory through our charisma and our gifts. You gave it through Jesus resurrecting. You gave it through Jesus returning and setting things right. And I pray that you bless this work and this ministry. In your name we pray. Amen.